So, Lumpur finished off the talk by saying that she spoke very quickly, but when the Dharma comes out, that's how it comes out. So I'll do my best to give an accurate translation. So homage to the blessed one, noble one, a perfectly self-awakened one. And greetings to all of you, and those of you who are developing the Dhamma, those of you who have faith in your hearts to come together for this online retreat this year. So this is the third day of this time that we have to practice the Dhamma. And so we have this intention in our hearts that this is the time to train our minds. And during this retreat time, it's a bit more kind of intense than how we normally train ourselves. Normally, perhaps we do the morning chanting, the evening chanting, a bit of meditation, maybe half an hour or an hour of sitting. And, um, but when we enter into this retreat period, then we increase the efforts that we have and our mindfulness can become more consistent. So we come to study this path of practice that's come down to us uh, through uh, Venerable Ajahn Chah. And he studied it from uh, Ajahn Man and Ajahn Tongrat, Ajahn Ginnari. And so we have this faith that they had practiced to the point of being arahants, the fully awakened beings. And that, that was true for Ajahn Man, Ajahn Tongrat, Ajahn Ginnari, and Ajahn Chah. And so there are many of these uh, noble monks who have seen the Dhamma. And it's really amazing um, that they were able to reach this. So we can ask the question to ourselves, in this world, what is important? You see people give much importance to the natural resources, and there are a lot of these. But what about resources in terms of people, the resource of the Dhamma? This is something that's truly important. And in this country, in Thailand, uh, there is this. There's also the king who helps to support the Buddhist religion. And this uh, dynasty has lasted until this present uh, king, King Rama X. And he himself practices and studies the scriptures. And all of these, uh, and this is a great uh, boon for the Thai people and for people overseas, those who have faith in Buddhism. Because it gives us the opportunity to be able to uh, practice this Dhamma. So this path of practice that we've been given, it's correct, it's true, and there's no need to doubt it. But it's natural for this mind of ours 
that when it's born into a body, that it doesn't know what's going on. It sees that I have a mother, a father, brothers, sisters, that I have a self. And that's just how it is. And then when we are born into the world, we need to make our way through the world. If we don't study, then we won't get that kind of worldly knowledge and we'll become a burden on the societies that we live in. And there are also people who do have a lot of worldly wisdom, but they don't have Dhamma. And it's possible for them to give a lot of problems to society. So when we're born with the self, then everything we do is for the sake of me and mine. That we study, we go to work, we have our efforts in that. And we're able to succeed to one degree or another. And those who gain success, they feel pride in that success. But we shouldn't forget that even though we may gain these things, even though we may succeed, that um, if there's ignorance there, then we'll attach to that as being me, as being mine. And then this conceit comes up that I am better, I am equal, or I am worse to others. And it's natural with the mind that's affected by ignorance to be that way. Because this ignorance is there in the hearts of all people. And so if we are better, then we attach to that. If we gain a lot of things, if we gain praise or status or pleasure, then delusion makes us attached to that and this conceit arises. So we need to come to practice the Dhamma. Because this Dhamma is a great means to purify our hearts. And those people who are distracted, entertained by the things of the world, they don't have an interest in the Dhamma. They say that the Dhamma, it's just for monks, it's just for nuns, just that. And they think, or children think like that. That's how all kids think. But it's when we ourselves come across the first noble truth, this truth of dukkha, then we seek a path to find freedom from that suffering. Some people find a path which isn't correct, and that ends up by just increasing the suffering that they have. But those people with intelligence, who have merits, who have barami, they're able to find the right path, they're able to come to study the Dhamma. So it's um, like many people during the time of the Buddha, they saw this truth of suffering and they found a path out until they could attain to the Dhamma, attain to uh, Sotapanna, stream entry, or Sakadagami, Anagami, Arahanship, this full awakening. There were many who were able to do this. Some people could know and gain insight very quickly, and the practice was smooth. Some people could gain this quick knowledge 
but the practice was a lot of suffering. And there were also those who, for whom the practice was very tough and it was slow as well. There were also those for whom the practice was tough and they didn't gain knowledge. And so it depends upon what each individual has accumulated uh, from the past. In this present day and age, those people who are able to gain quick knowledge are hard to find. And so it's like a horse, those who gain this quick knowledge. It's like a horse that all it has to do is see the shadow of the whip and it starts galloping. So people with intelligence are like that. And then there's the second kind of practitioner, those who just need to get whipped once and then they run. And the third kind, they need constantly to be whipped. And as soon as they stop getting whipped, then they stop running or they uh, slow down. So people practicing in this present day are much like this third kind. So we need to have mindfulness there, teaching our minds a lot, reminding ourselves a lot. And because it's very natural for us that when we sit in meditation, that laziness will come up at times, that our faith will decrease. But for those who gain results from their practice, who are able to meet with peace of heart, they don't always need to be telling themselves to practice, reminding themselves. So it's like for myself, uh, during my fourth, myself being Ajahnanan here, uh, during my fourth reigns, the fourth year as a monk, there was a lot of joy that came up in my heart. And the heart felt very full, the body and the mind were light. And when it came time to practice, then that would just happen. And when the mind wouldn't have to force, it wouldn't have to make or even give instructions. It would just walk in meditation, sit in meditation. Mindfulness would... Um, bring up this reminder all by itself. But before we get to this point, we need to put in effort. We need to really try. But when we experience the results within ourselves, then um, the practice just goes by itself. It happens automatically. We don't have to force ourselves to practice. So those... Who, are able, who have the faith to do a lot of walking meditation, sitting meditation, to turn up to all the chanting, and to do this without letting up, without missing out. That they have a lot of energy. And this is what Ajahn Chah had said, that those who can practice like this, those monks, who can practice in this way, they've got great energy to them. And I took notice of that teaching and I observed and I could see how right from that time that I heard the teaching right till this present moment that that really is the case, that's how things are. So for all of us, we've come together to participate in this retreat and we have that sincerity of heart, that focus to do this to train our minds to bring them to peace.
to bring up mindfulness and make this firmly established in the heart. So what we need to do is separate the mind out from the five khandhas. If we don't have wisdom, if delusion is there, we'll understand that the mind and the khandhas are the same thing. That this body is mine, that feelings, perceptions, mental formations, sense consciousness, these are me. We gain that kind of understanding. But when the Buddha taught Venerable Anya Kondanya and the, and the five ascetics, what he said was that uh, form, feeling, perception, mental formation, sense consciousness, that these are always arising, persisting, and ceasing. That anything that is of the nature to arise is of the nature to cease. So we can observe for ourselves the things that arise and cease, the things that disappear. How can they have a self to them? If we see it as being self, this is atta. If we see it as being non-self, this is anatta. But the thing is, is that we steal these things. We steal form and feelings and perception, mental formation, sense consciousness and take possession of them. We steal nature. All of these things that arise, last and cease, we take them, we steal them as being mine, as being me. But when these five khandhas uh, get old, they get painful, they start uh, dispersing, they start changing, none of them experience any suffering. The body itself doesn't suffer. When the body is born, then it starts off with just, just two cells. And those uh, cells multiply very quickly and start producing various organs in the body. But this mind comes into it and attaches to it as being me. And so what we're doing is stealing nature. And this has its results as well. Because when the cells in this body start to deteriorate, well, in the beginning they can build up new cells. All of these have their age. Well, the cells in the body, they have their lifespan. And they start to break apart and they die and then the body, just through its natural processes, builds up new cells to replace them. And it doesn't need for the mind to instruct it to do that. We don't tell our bodies that right now you're going to produce new cells in this organ and that organ. That's not how it works. But rather nature just produces them, builds them all by itself. But as this process carries on, this body lasts, and deterioration takes place. And then old age sets in, and the body becomes more painful. And the organs start to deteriorate in their condition. The cells aren't able to repair themselves in time. So it's like a car that's breaking down. And if we don't have parts to replace the ones that are broken, then the car just can't go. 
and we have to just throw it away. So the body is just like that. When it gets to a state where we're not able to repair it anymore, the doctors can't help us, then it needs to break, and that's just how it is. But this mind attaches to it. It wants for this body to last forever. It doesn't want to go. So there was a novice from India who saw old age sickness and death. And he said, I don't want for that to happen to me. I want for this body to be strong and beautiful forever. And so I asked him, well, what was it like when you were a child? And if you had to stay in that state forever, being that state of not being able to help yourself, not being able to walk or move about, would you want that? It'd be a lot of suffering. And so this body does need to grow old, but we want to stay forever. But that's just not possible, because this body is a conditioned phenomena. It's a sankhara. Anything that has conditions that produce it, that is a sankhara. And none of these things are able to stay. That which doesn't have anything producing it is vi-sankhara, which is nibbana. So for this mind of ours, if there are conditions that are uh, proliferating in the mind, that are conditioning uh, the mind, then it will attach to all of these things. And in that state, we need to be born and then die and then born and then die. And this happens over and over again. And sometimes we're born with five khandhas. We're born into the state of a human or a deva, a celestial being. And for those who are in these states, they have a lot of merit. But there's still um, attachment that comes up. And as soon as we're born, that we cling. And when we do something, it's for me or for my family, for my country. But if we proceed in that way, without virtue, without morality, then we can produce a lot of confusion and chaos within ourselves and within the world, produce a lot of suffering. Because there is this ignorance, clinging and craving there. So the Buddha taught us to contemplate, to find the truth of these things, and to know the truth. And through that, the suffering we experience gets less and less. When there's ignorance there, it's normal for there to be conceit as well. It's normal to see ourselves as being better or equal or worse to others. But that delusion kind of fixates on that, and we take that as being the reality. And there are these nine kinds of conceit that come up. And it's the anagami, the non-returner, who's been able to abandon all of this conceit. And these, this conceit is one of the higher fetters. The lower fetters are those of this self 
identity, view, skeptical doubt, attachments to rites and rituals. This is the first gate that we need to pass through. These are the things that have bound tightly around our hearts for countless lifetimes. This giving importance and identity that we have towards physicality and mentality as being me. And this is a view that we need to change so that we can see into not-self. So when we can, this is an important stage of the practice because by passing through this first gate, by getting rid of this um, self-identity view, attachments to right and ritual, skeptical doubt, um, then we're able to see the Dhamma. So we need to be well established in virtue. We need to train to contemplate into this body so that we can gain an understanding, a clear understanding of it, and let go. And then the heart can reach purity. So these stages of purity, that the, the mind um, steadily becomes more and more pure. So if we reach the first level of awakening, um, then it's like the moon on the fourth day of the lunar month. And then the second level of awakening, of Sakatakami, it's like on the eighth night of the lunar month. And then non-returner, it's like the heart uh, becomes the moon on the twelfth night. And then full awakening, arahantship, it's the heart becomes like the full moon on the fifteenth night. But if we don't reach this, if we don't practice, we don't train, and then there'll always be things that are covering over our hearts. There are these five hindrances that cover over the mind and make it dark, they make it black. And so we're not able to see, we're not able to gain clarity, we're not able to find peace. And they create a lot of chaos. So this is why sila is so important. Because even though we still have greed, aversion, delusion in the mind, but through the power of virtue, we don't follow those. We don't act upon them. So there's a comparison given to it being like a tiger that is frightening, that's powerful, but it's in a cage. And if we don't feed it, then it will start losing its energy and become weak. So these defilements are the same, even though they may be full of energy, even though they may be very fierce. If we don't follow them, will they still have energy? Well, they won't. They become weaker and weaker. And initially we restrain them through sila, through controlling our acts of body and speech. And when we're skilled in that, then we won't allow our minds to act upon those defilements. And the benefit of this is coolness and peace in heart. So we feel at ease then. And if we're around people who have sila, then there's great ease. Even if we leave a lot of gold around, these virtuous people won't want that gold. Because they see that sila has far more value to it.
even if it was 20 million dollars worth of gold. But because these people are keeping the precepts, then they won't see it as having any value whatsoever because they see that it belongs to someone else. They don't want to take it for themselves. They see that stealing produces suffering, it harms other beings. And so because of the kindness and compassion that they have, they don't want to take the possession of others. They don't want to harm any being, no matter how small it may be. They don't want to cause any damage or pain to the hearts of others. There's no wish, or they won't um, take the loved ones of others. They also see how mindfulness and wisdom are very important, and so they won't get drunk. They won't allow their mindfulness and wisdom to decrease. Because they see that if that happens, then this will damage um, their mindfulness, damage their samadhi. They see that sila's virtue is a noble wealth that has immense value. That we can't find the end of its goodness. So there was one great teacher who was uh, teaching Dhamma to later, his late disciples, uh, Ajahn Kao. And he said that sila, it's like, uh, it has this special fragrance to it. And it's much greater than the fragrance of a flower. Because the fragrance of a flower, that just follows the breeze. It's not able to go against the wind. But the fragrance of sila, however, can go against the flow of the wind. And it's a noble wealth. It's a ladder that takes us up to mindfulness and samadhi. It forms the path that can take us to knowing the Dhamma. So our Buddha, the fully self-awakened Buddha, he once taught a wanderer called Subhata, and he said that there are no footsteps, there are no tracks in the air. And he adds a lot of wisdom very sharp wisdom. You couldn't find anyone who could compare to his wisdom. So we see that even though there are beings that cross through the air, there are birds, and nowadays we have planes, but they don't leave any footprints behind, they don't leave any tracks. It's not like the, the earth, that there can be footprints in the air, these don't exist. And so too, just as there are no footprints in the sky, that there are no beings who are able to attain to Magapala, Nibbana, to the path, the fruitions, and Nibbana outside of the Noble Eightfold Path, that no one's able to get to awakening um, without sila, samadhi, and panya, that we need this to awaken. And it's only that that will allow us to awaken. And so there was one person who asked, well, Sila, can that take one to freedom from suffering? Can that cut down the cycle of samsara? 
And this whole path of sila, samadhi and panya is able to do that. It's a very significant vehicle. It's a noble vehicle. That when people follow this, when they practice, then this takes them above the world. So for us as practitioners, we want to know what's that like? What's being above the world like? What's it like to be a sotapanna? We want to know this. But this desire to know can make the mind unsettled and at ease. And so it's something that we need to put down for now and just come to practice and come to develop this path of sila, samadhi and panya to really be firm on this. So for us, we've come together for this retreat. We're practicing following these teachings. And we need to put our efforts into this as well. Because we see how when we studied at school, it took many, many years for us to succeed at that. And then we go to work and it's not easy to gain success in our work. And then we maybe even specialize in our occupations and study to a higher degree. And all of this requires a lot of effort and the practice is no different. It's not easy. It's not like if we're lazy, we're going to be able to gain an understanding of the Dhamma. It's something that we need to practice. But this Dhamma is amazing. It's something that is always here. It's always open and revealed. It's not something that we need to bring into being. It's like anicca, dukkha, anatta, this nature of instability or impermanence and stress and not self, it's already revealed that this is the way that nature is. So why is it that we don't see that? It's like we're blind. And for a blind person, well, the colors in the world are there, all these material objects, they're still there, light is there. But it's just because that person is blind that they can't see any of these things. But if they get their eyes looked at, looked after, and they cure them of whatever's wrong, then they'll be able to see all these things. Perhaps their retinas aren't working well, and so they're not able to um, come to know these colors and these forms. But when they get that cured, then they're able to see them. And so it's the same with anicca, dukkha, anatta, that it's always revealed, it's always here. And the Buddha said that whether a Tathagata awakens in this world or not, the nature of things is to be this way. And how um, it's conditions that give rise to things, that that's just how it is. So therefore we need to bring our hearts to awakening. And even though we, and we need to open up these inner eyes of ours, even though our external eyes may not be so good and we don't see external things, but if there's light to our inner eye, then we'll be able to awaken. We'll be able to become an Aryapugala, a noble being. So we should contemplate these bodies, seeing them as being anicca, dukkha, anastha, gaining 
understanding into the Dhamma. Because we've seen so many external things already, and those just pull the mind into liking and disliking. But for the people who have strong mindfulness and wisdom, they're able to win out over ignorance. So therefore, we need to put in our effort. And through this effort, we'll be able to change these wrong views that we have. We'll be able to destroy delusion. Be able to see into the nature of self. Because if we see the self and we attach to that as being me, as being mine, then that is seeing it through delusion. That's delusion into the self. But if we see the self and we see that there's no true self there within it, if we see it as being something that's inconstant, stressful, and not self, um, that's when we see the true self. So that's how Venerable Anya Kondanya saw things. And he awakened to the Dhamma through that. So for us, we have this good opportunity now to gain insight into the Dhamma. And even though there is this ignorance there within our minds, we're still able to train them to the point where we can reach Maga, Pala, Nibbana. And it just depends on us walking on this path of sila, samadhi, and panya. So may you set your hearts on this. May you develop this a lot. May you do this a lot. Because this is such a good opportunity that we have now. So we should look at these minds, be studying them and asking ourselves, what are they like? And trying to separate the mind out from the five khandhas. See that the five khandhas are not self, that I am not the five khandhas. What are they then? What are they like? They're just nature. These bodies are just natural elements. These five khandhas are just one kind of dhamma that arises, persists, and ceases. And is there any me within that? They just follow nature. And so we hear that, and we may think about it, we may ponder it, and we may think to ourselves, well, that's really how it is. But when we receive a sense impression, and our understanding isn't enough, our mindfulness is insufficient, and wisdom doesn't arise, then we immediately cling to them. So then what do we do? We need to train. Because if we don't train, then the mind will always be clinging. It will always be deluded for countless lifetimes. So initially we habitually cling, but we cling to the goodness and building up goodness. And through that, we cycle between the states of a human and a deva. It's like the people, the disciples of the Buddha during his time, his monastics disciples or uh, Anandapindaka or Lady Visaka. There were many, many who were in this situation that they had built up a lot of Bharami uh, from being close to previous Buddhas. And so they just went between these states of being a deva and a human because they had that Bharami there to do it. And even though they hadn't reached any state of awakening, 
um, their minds were on a high level. I'm just going between a human and a deva. So that's how it was uh, for these awakened beings during the time of the Buddha. And that's how it is now for people with a lot of bhairami during this time as well. They can either be born as devas or humans, that their minds don't fall down. And then when they reach their last existence, there's still the kind of leftovers of the karma that they have produced in the past that they have to receive. And that's just natural, it's normal. But that's just external things that are happening. It doesn't have any effect on their minds. So sankharas, these conditioned phenomena, they all need to decay. And that's true even for the bodies of arahants. They need to break apart. They're not able to stay forever. Even though the Buddha had such great amounts of bharami, still his body had to pass away. And so he taught us how these conditioned phenomena are inconstant, unstable. Even the great arahants who had such immense wisdom and psychic powers, they still needed to be separated from this world. So we see how life doesn't last long. For many occupations, there's the retirement age of 60. And these bodies too have their retirement age as well. And after that, um, they need to give these elements back. And these four elements we just borrow from the world. There's this form and there's the four mental khandas that come up, that arise, come together. But these are things which we just temporarily borrow. And when we just borrow them temporarily, um, then they're things that we have to give back. All of the wealth, all of the gain, the praise, the status, the pleasure that we experience, that we cling to this and take this as being me and mine. But are these things really important? Because all of us need to die. And surely it's better to be raising up goodness, to be producing goodness. Anything that isn't good, we're not interested in that. So those beings, those people who have used their time well in this world, who have built up a lot of goodness, and even when they pass away, their name remains and people remember them. It's like the Savakas, the awakened disciples of the Buddha during his time and the noble beings during our present day, that they've built up so much goodness, had such a good effect on the world, and so people remember them. And like in Thailand, each king of this dynasty, that they have helped to support the Buddhist religion, and this has brought such great goodness. They have generosity and virtue, Meditation, they've got faith to support the Dhamma so that it can stay, so that it's been able to survive on um, to this present day, and so people are able to still practice it now. So we see that the Dhamma has such great value. It's more valuable than anything else, and it's something that we should try to seek out. 
to really set our hearts on practicing the Dhamma, on gaining the Dhamma. So may you be intent on that. So we'll just sit briefly now for another 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and then we can uh, bow together. นั่งสมาธิต่ออีก 15 นาทีครับแล้วก็กราบพระพร้อมกัน <coughs> 